Let us pray. Most loving and gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise for this day. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to hear your voice. Lord, may your word be spoken and your word received. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you were looking for the nice, calm, sweet Jesus, this is not your gospel passage. Because we see Jesus' response to what's going on in the temple, and his response is quite intense, and for good reason, we will see. And this encounter from John's gospel reminds us that it's the time of the Passover. So this would by nature be the busiest time of the temple by which uh, all of the men who were in the surrounding area who could physically get there were required to go and to make pilgrimage and to make sacrifice. For the Passover being one day but there were festivals that would have lasted the whole week that people would have been required to attend. So you couldn't have picked a time when there would be more people in the temple than this. And in the temple courts, there are people selling the cattle and the sheep and the doves and the money changers. And we have to ask, well, what's going on? Well, in order to come to the temple and make your sacrifice, you have to get the animals from somewhere. And if you're coming from far away, which people were required to do, you couldn't really bring your animals with you. So they had to have someone where you could buy your animal for the sacrifice to bring to the temple to do what was required by the law. And to pay the temple tax, the money had to be changed. You couldn't pay it in all these different foreign currencies from wherever people were coming. And so they needed someone to change the money so that you could pay the temple tax. Now, what is going on here that may not be so evident at first is what has happened is these were kind of activities that took place outside the temple complex. But the religious leaders had a brilliant idea that we could make it easier for people and moved everything into the temple complex proper. Now, when we hear the temple complex, we have to put it in perspective. Uh, you know, we're sitting in a huge building here, but the temple complex I read somewhere could be like 30 or 35 acres. There's a lot that goes into the temple complex. And where this sale was happening is in the temple complex in the court of the Gentiles. The only place where those who were not Jews could come to worship. And now the religious leaders, to make sure that they could get money for the upkeep of the temple, sort of took over the Gentiles' worship space to set up the temple store. That's what's going on in this encounter. And as you're hearing it, you're probably already starting to see why Jesus would get upset. This is the one place the Gentiles are allowed to go. And the very 
reason for the temple is worship, not money-making. The temple is there to worship. And Jesus then makes this whip and drives out from the temple area all the animals, the money changers, overturns the table and rightly challenges them, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? And to some degree we could say, well, if they're supposed to do this, where are they supposed to get the animals? And they're kind of, you know, there, there's some tension in what the law requires and what Jesus is saying, what have you done? And as we look, what starts to happen, over time it happened uh, for the religious leaders and those following the law, and what can easily happen to us is that the temple had ceased to be primarily a place of worship and became a religion factory by which they pumped out the religious things and the religious actions when it was supposed to be a place of relationship, of prayer, of worship. And I think that's a caution that we need to hear in the church still today. That we could easily make our time together a religious factory by which we make churchgoers who do church things. And that's not what we're called to do. For Jesus calls us to be disciples and to live in a relationship. Not just pump out people who can sit in a seat and do all the things that look churchy. And we can easily do those things and lose track of the central reason why we're here. Which is prayer, worship, and relationship. And if at any point we lose that, we ought to say to one another, what's going on here? We're missing the central reason of why we gather week after week. It's to come and worship, to come and to be in relationship, to come and grow as a disciple that we might be transformed into the image and likeness of God. And anything that starts to interfere with that or is something that we just do out of habit, like a factory assembly line, we as a church need to say, well, wait a minute. That's what Jesus is asking them to do. You've missed it. You took what was for a right reason, and now you've lost the reason and the who of why you were doing it. Refocus. And what a story for us to hear during Lent. Refocus. Remember why we're here. Remember the one whom we come and worship. And may we never get into this factory mode where we're just pumping out ourselves as churchgoers. And the disciples remembered that the scripture says, zeal for your house will consume me. That the, the Messiah is to be seen in Jerusalem. And here, Jesus is doing these things. And the Jews say to him, well, what sign can you show us to prove that you have authority? And Jesus says, well, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And of course, they get all up in arms because they say, well, if you can imagine a 35-acre complex, we've been working on this for 46 years. And now you're going to destroy it in three days? Put it back together? This doesn't make any sense. 
But we're told the temple he spoke of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he said. That in three days, Jesus would rise after the temple of his body was destroyed. And in fact, that's the very sign that he can show to prove his authority. They're asking for this sign. Well, how do you do this? Who gives you, essentially, what, who makes you the Messiah? Why do you have authority to say these things? And the demonstration of who the Messiah is and what he came to do happens on the cross. That message that Paul says is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the glory of God. It's the demonstration of God's love. It's the demonstration of Christ's victory over sin and death by which he offered himself freely as an atoning sacrifice to do what we could never do, defeating sin and death forever. And his resurrection on the third day is confirmation by the Father that the Son is who he says he is and his confirmation of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Confirmation of the victory that has been won. But unless we've come to understand the mercy, love, forgiveness, and grace of God, that just seems like foolishness. You know, and sometimes we forget the order of events in which things happen that Paul's talking about. As of late, there, there seems to be a tendency to think that, well, someday, we all decide for ourselves that we're sinners and that we feel so horrible about this that we then make this decision to repent and we turn to the Lord and then we do, and there's a lot of we-doings in all of this. Eventually then we go to the Lord. And, but in fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. It's God acts on our heart shows us His mercy, love, and grace, that we receive His forgiveness and then come to understand our sinfulness. That happens second. Because until you know God, until we know His love and His mercy and grace, what sense does sin make? Because otherwise we're just operating in our own paradigm, our own judgments. It's only after we know God's love that we recognize that the power of sin over us, the power that Jesus has set us free. And so we need to remember it's the work of God that brings us to say yes to begin with. And it's only afterwards, the more we know God, the more we know how far we shall fall short of His glory. And the more that His Spirit works in us to change and transform us. So I pray that as we move through these days of Lent and in the days ahead that we may keep this gospel account in our mind, that we might ask ourselves always, why are we here and what are we doing? And may God always be at the center of that. May the church never lose sight of the fact that we are here to pray and to worship and to meet with God to dwell in relationship, to be transformed into disciples. And may nothing that we do, no matter how good the ministry is, ever overshadow that. Because that's our primary call. Because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of the cross. Because we know His love and mercy and grace. And may we with boldness go and invite others to come and see. May they hear of the God who loves them. 
May they hear of the God who gave himself for them, an atoning sacrifice. And may they hear of his victory on the third day, by which he was raised again, opening the door to everlasting life for each of us. For that's the call of the church. That's the call on each of our lives. And may the Holy Spirit empower us to go and make it so. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the work that you've done on our behalf. The reality that you have done what we could never do. And by your sacrifice, you have opened for us the way to be reconciled to the Father, to come again into that relationship. May we come to know you more deeply each day. May your church always be a center of worship and prayer, of meeting with you. And may your Holy Spirit empower us to go to share your message of love with others, that they too might come to know and be set free. Keep us ever focused on you, and may our lives be lived to your honor and glory. And Jesus, we ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen.